Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Nearly Half of Tap Water in the United States Contains PFAS, by Jennifer Kalfast. Then an article by Danielle Shapiro, The Sabbath and the Printed Page. We'll follow that up with an article by Brett Swanson, COVID Censorship Proved to be Deadly. Then Ben Zimmer wrote, A, well, a Way to Celebrate Longevity, even amid changes, anniversary. And Leigh Camping Carter has an article, Fitness Means More Than Losing Weight. All of these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Nearly Half of Tap Water in the United States Contains PFAS. Close to half of the United States tap water supply is contaminated with so-called Forever Chemicals, a comprehensive study conducted by the United States Geological Survey estimated, amplifying public health concerns over the nation's drinking water. Researchers detected at least one of the chemicals, known as PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, in about 45% of United States drinking water samples. They took samples from private and public water supplies in 716 locations nationwide from 2016 to 2021, the agency said, testing for 32 of 12,000 PFAS compounds. The study, researchers said, amounted to one of the most extensive assessments of forever chemicals in United States drinking supplies. The chemicals, long used in consumer products, are found in water, air, food, and soil, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. Scientists have linked the chemicals to a number of health problems, including high cholesterol, a decreased immune response to vaccines, and an increased risk of kidney and testicular cancer and thyroid disease. Nearly everyone in the U.S. has some levels of PFAS in their blood, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The U.S. Geological Survey study found more exposure to FAS in areas including the Great Plains, the Great Lakes region, the eastern seaboard, and central and southern California. There was a higher probability of detecting the chemicals in urban areas or places with a history of contamination compared with more rural areas, the study found. The study adds to research showing the proliferation of these chemicals, which resist heat and repel grease, stains, and water. They have been used in consumer products, including carpets, grease-resistant paper and cosmetics, and industrial manufacturing since the 1940s. PFAS chemicals take a long time to break down and accumulate in humans and the environment, according to the EPA. The EPA in March proposed the first federal limits on six PFAS compounds in public drinking water. The proposed limits are expected to cost water utilities billions of dollars to filter out these substances. 
A growing number of states are banning PFAS in products such as food packaging. Some companies announce plans to stop using PFAS. Lawsuits have targeted companies using them in products and in packaging. And now, the Sabbath and the printed page. The news cycle doesn't get a Sabbath, not the way my family does. At sundown every Friday, we power off our phones, refrain from driving, and spend the day in prayer and company with loved ones. We shut out the busy world to focus on the Jewish day of rest because God rested too after his six days of creation. But the world doesn't reciprocate when we block it out. Politicians may work nine to five, but the same isn't true of war, weather, sports, and disease. Since we can't go online during the Sabbath, we cling to our print newspaper subscriptions like Cherish Family Heirlooms. Accessible online news has plunged the print newspaper industry into a freefall. America's population since 1990 has increased by almost a third, yet weekday circulation for the print versions of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times has decreased by an estimated 60%. Local papers have fared far worse. While some polling shows Americans still favor print news over online formats, the price is too steep and the inconvenience too severe to curtail the downward trend. I hope print newspapers survive. When major events occur on a Friday night, my family goes on a news-reading offensive on Saturday morning. Information might be limited as stories developed overnight. But that doesn't stop us from dissecting different slivers as pieces of an unknown puzzle. The abortive Wagner Group mutiny, the 2017 National Basketball Association finals, Paris 2015 terror attacks, and the 2017 Unite the Right march in Charlottesville, Virginia, all got in, at least partially, just under the Friday Night Wire. The opinion writers and pundits didn't have time to editorialize in print before their evening deadlines, so we were forced to draw our own conclusions the next morning from the facts presented in the news pages. In my family, everyone comes to the traditional Sabbath lunch with prepared remarks. My father adopts a historical perspective. My mother is concerned with free speech and religious liberty. My brothers discuss the weekly Torah portion or the Mets. My sisters offer what they've learned in business and medical school. I play devil's advocate. At a table that leans conservative, my brother-in-law is the lone liberal defending his convictions. Our little editorial board makes sense of breaking news and contextualizes the events of the week. The inability to rely on our phones challenges us to think deeply. We can't Google for historical examples to support our arguments. Instead, we present and defend our positions based on knowledge from the reading we've already done. With all the technology available today, we sometimes forget how extraordinary our brains are. The Sabbath reminds us. Even if you don't celebrate the Jewish Sabbath, consider observing an online news Sabbath and renewing your print subscription to the newspaper. It may work wonders on how you make sense of the world. And now Brett Swanson's 
COVID censorship proved to be deadly. In the wake of the 1986 Challenger space shuttle explosion, Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman knew that the truth would both fuel progress and soothe the nation's sorrow. For a successful technology, he said, reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled. For three years, pandemic public relations mocked nature, generating fear, illness, inflation, and excess death beyond what the virus caused. Digital censorship supercharged the effort to hide reality, but reality is getting its day in court. On July 4th, United States District Judge Terry Dowdy temporarily blocked numerous federal agencies and the White House from collaborating with social media companies and third-party groups to censor speech. Discovery in Missouri v. Biden exposed relationships among governmental agencies and social media firms and revealed an additional layer of university centers and self-styled disinformation watchdogs and fact-checking misfits. Elon Musk's release of some of Twitter's internal files revealed that up to 80 Federal Bureau of Investigation agents were embedded with social media companies. The agents mostly weren't fighting terrorism, but flagging wrongthink by American citizens, including eminent scientists who suggested different paths on COVID policy. The result of these relationships? Twitter blacklisted Stanford physician and economist Jay Bhattacharya, for showing COVID almost exclusively threatened the elderly, severely reducing the visibility of his tweets. When Stanford Health Policy's Scott Atlas began advising the White House, YouTube erased his most prominent video opposing lockdowns. Twitter banned Robert Malone, a pioneer of mRNA vaccine technology, for calling attention to the vaccine's dangers. YouTube demonetized evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein, who suggested the virus might be engineered and predicted vaccine-evading variants. And those are only a few examples. Social media platforms were powerful tools for full-spectrum censorship, but they didn't act alone. Medical schools, medical boards, science journals, and legacy media sank from the same hymenal. Legions of doctors stayed quiet after witnessing the demonization of their peers who challenged the COVID orthodoxy. A little censorship leads people to watch what they say. Millions of patients and citizens were deprived of important insights as a result. Health authorities and TV doctors insisted young people were vulnerable, demanded toddlers wear masks, close schools, beaches, and parks, and were loath to contemplate crucial cost-benefit analysis. The economy, mental health, never heard of them. These experts denied the protective effects of recovered immunity, a phenomenon we've known since the plague of Athens in 430 BC. They effectively prohibited generic drugs approved by the Food and Drug Administration such as ethromycin and ivermectin, which low-income nations around the world were deploying successfully. 
They failed to appreciate the evolutionary dynamics of mass vaccination during a pandemic. The United States government spent $6 trillion to boil its shuttered economy, and most people got COVID anyway. Worst of all, the lockdowns and mandates resulted in unprecedented bad health outcomes for young and middle-aged people in rich countries. Excess mortality in most high-income nations was worse in 2021 and 2022 than in 2020, the initial pandemic year. Many poorer nations with less government control seemed to fare better. Sweden, which didn't have a lockdown, performed better than nearly every other advanced nation. After navigating 2020 with relative success, young and middle-aged healthy people in rich nations began dying in unprecedented numbers in 2021 and 2022. Health authorities haven't focused enough on this cataclysm of premature death from non-COVID heart attacks, strokes, pulmonary embolisms, kidney failure, and cancer. Hiding these and other realities has become more difficult in the Internet age. The information explosion has allowed more people to spot quickly the mistakes of officials and learn the truth. This has changed the relationship between the authorities and those they govern. Those in charge feel threatened. Digital censorship is their response to this crisis of authority. True, misinformation is rampant online, but it was far worse before the Internet when myths could persist for centuries. New technologies allow us to compile data quickly, correct errors, find facts, and dispel falsehoods. Science, supported by an open internet, is the process by which we reduce misinformation and approach the truth. Artificial intelligence will improve our ability to sift, parse, edit, authenticate, and organize information. When you hear calls to license or centralize control of AI, Remember the hubris of COVID censorship. Attacks on me, Dr. Anthony Fauci famously insisted, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Feynman would have been appalled. Science, he wisely noted, is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And now Ben Zimmer's A Way to Celebrate Longevity Even Amid Changes, Anniversary. Ten years ago, the very first word-on-the-street column appeared in the Wall Street Journal. The word I explored in that debut column was cyber, which I noticed was starting to get used as shorthand for cybersecurity. Since then, I have filed regular weekly dispatches from the world of words, and fortunately, I'm in no danger of running out of fascinating terms from our lexicon to investigate. For my 10th anniversary column, what better word to write about than anniversary itself? As a term of celebration and commemoration, it has found a place in our language for more than eight centuries, and yet its meaning continues to shift in modern usage. In classical Latin, anniversarius means, meant returning yearly, combining annus for year, and a form of the verb Ventory meaning to turn. That same turning root can be found in words like convert, invert, versatile, and version. Even universe is related, originally meaning turned into one. 
a Dai's anniversaria was an anniversary day, originally marking a person's death. In Christian contexts, often the remembrances of the martyrdom of saints. The word entered medieval French as anniversaries, and the English anniversary began showing up in print in the early 13th century. The Oxford English Dictionary's earliest example comes from the Ancronine Rywell, a manual for anorexists or aesthetic nuns, instructing them in the finer liturgical points of praying for departed souls. It took a few centuries before the word started getting used more broadly for an annual celebration. A 1567 collection of historical tales called The Palace of Pleasure by William Painter describes how the ancient kings of Persia yearly did solemnize an anniversary of their coronation with great feast and triumph. In American newspapers as early as 1783, the 4th of July was sometimes dubbed the anniversary of our independence, while in England the Jubilee of 1809 celebrated the 50th anniversary of King George III's accession to the throne. Wedding anniversaries also became more commonly observed in the early 19th century following German traditions. One 1819 account in a London newspaper explained that the 50th anniversary of the King of Saxony's marriage day was called in Germany the Golden Marriage. Golden anniversaries joined by silver, 25 years, ruby, 40 years, and so forth. Eventually, retailers worked out gifts to commemorate any number of years of marital bliss, starting with the paper anniversary. As anniversary got used more frequently, the annual part of the word was often forgotten, and it came to be used to mark other lengths of time. Why should a married couple wait for their paper anniversary when they can get an early start celebrating their one-month anniversary? Stickers who want to keep anniversary annual have suggested other terms for the monthly equivalent, like mensiversary, using the Latin root mensis for month, or the English-Latin hybrid mortiversary. These days, that iversary ending can also be grafted onto other words like workiversary or twitterversary. Usage nitpickers might also balk at phrases like 10-year anniversary, since 10th anniversary should be enough to indicate the time period. But with the meaning of anniversary getting diluted over time, the annual nature often requires a little extra emphasis. There is one thing that readers of this column should appreciate by now, it is that the meanings of words inevitably change as time marches on. Just as we no longer expect anniversary to be limited to the death days of saints, we should likewise learn to accept that the word has broadened to encompass non-annual commemorations. As language shifts over time, we learn new ways to mark its passing. And now Lee Camping Carter's article, Fitness Means More Than Losing Weight. If you're about to kick off a summer workout program with the aim of unearthing your beach body, I'm here to tell you, don't. I spent years of my life suffering through exercise or ignoring it entirely 
because of a weight loss goal. I've pounded treadmills, pushing myself to hit a certain calorie count. I've tucked and pulsed through ballet classes, dreaming of the long and lean muscles that would be my prize. I've tried personal training, spin classes, gym memberships, and more. Like millions of Americans, I have turned to fitness to shrink my body, and when it didn't work, I dropped it over and over again. A few years ago, I hit a breaking point and stopped trying to lose weight. Slowly, I was able to return to exercise with new goals and a new attitude. A small but growing group of trainers, gyms, and studios are ditching weight loss as a goal of exercise. By focusing instead on the joy, strength, and health benefits that often come from movement, they hope to give people a less punitive and more sustainable relationship with fitness, whether or not the size or shape of their bodies change. The movement builds on the decades of work of fat activities, many of them black women who have fought against discrimination based on size. It also rests on research that suggests exercise rarely results in sustained weight loss, that people can be both fat and fit, and that fitness has health benefits even in the absence of losing weight. Weight loss in general strips people of joy, period, said Luca Page, the founder of Radically Fit, a gym in Oakland, California, that describes itself as serving queer, trans, BIPOC, and bitter bodied folks. It asks you to shrink yourself, not only physically, but emotionally eventually. When you're able to find joy in movement, it does the opposite, expands your life in all these different ways. Weight-inclusive fitness reframes the reasons for engaging in movement, tossing aside narrow aesthetic goals. Instead, participants might aim to curl 20 pounds instead of 15, run a faster mile, alleviate lower back pain, or even build community. The instructor tends to be less of a guru or drill sergeant, urging participants to push harder and conform to an ideal postural look, and more of a guide, encouraging people to decide what feels best that day. Language is also different. Comments about toning, sculpting, or shedding pounds are forbidden, as is the idea that exercise is a punishment for eating. Keep going to burn off brunch. You will never hear anything about getting fit so that you'll be skinnier, hotter, ready for bikini season, sculpted abs. Never, said Sadie Lincoln, co-founder and CEO of Barret 3, which offers online classes and in-person classes at more than 170 United States locations. We go the other way about base in your body, breathing fully in your belly, not pulling it in. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention continues to emphasize the importance of weight loss, stating that people who have obesity compared to those with a healthy weight are at increased risk for many serious diseases and health conditions, including diabetes and heart disease. Still, discarding weight loss as a workout goal has scientific backing. Extensive evidence has shown that exercise rarely leads to long-term sustainable weight loss since the body will compensate for an energy deficit in part by increasing appetite. Often a person who works out with a specific weight loss goal, say losing a certain number of pounds to fit in a swimsuit, 
might find initial success. But when their weight inevitably plateaus or the pounds return, they get frustrated and stop engaging in exercise, said Reagan Chastain, an American Council of Exercise certified health coach, fat positive advocate, and writer of the Weight and Healthcare newsletter. This can make fitness seem futile, potentially leading to emotional distress, a higher risk of eating disorders, and a harmful feedback loop known as wake cycling. This yo-yo process of losing and regaining weight has been linked to many of the harms associated with being at a higher weight. Stopping and starting exercise also means that people lose out on the advantages of movement. Benefits like better sleep, lower stress, increased energy, and a reduction in the risk of many diseases can accrue whether a person loses weight or not. This myth that movement makes you healthy because it makes you lose weight, that's simply not true. The benefit is direct, Chastain said. In a 2012 study, researchers looked at data from almost 12,000 men and women enrolled in the United States National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey to determine the association between mortality and healthy behaviors, including eating five or more fruits and vegetables a day, exercising regularly, limiting alcohol, and not smoking. The healthy behaviors were associated with a significant decrease in mortality, regardless of baseline body mass index, the study found. When it came to reducing health risks, increasing fitness and physical activity is more beneficial than losing weight, said Glenn Gesser, a professor of exercise physiology at Arizona State University. In 2021, he and a co-author published a wide-ranging review of the research on weight-centered versus weight-neutral approaches to health. If people increase physical activity or fitness, their risk of mortality goes down by 40% to 60%, Gessier said. With weight loss alone, the risk reduction ranges from no effect to 20%. Aerobic and resistance training can lower blood pressure, blood glucose, and blood lipids at least as much as losing weight, according to the review and mortality risk associated with obesity is largely reduced or eliminated by moderate to high levels of cardiorespiratory fitness or physical activity. Just on the basis of scientific evidence alone, it would make sense to try and get a person fit rather than try to get a person thin, Gessier said. Most fitness gurus are still trying to get people thin. Weight loss sells gym memberships and fitness equipment. Even fitness spaces that preach body positivity often also promote weight loss or use weight-stigmatizing language, Chastain said. For many people, particularly in bigger bodies, fitness spaces are areas of shame, ridicule, bullying, or condescension. Body shame can have the opposite effect of encouraging health-promoting behaviors, research suggests. Priming half of the 100 overweight women in one 2009 study with weight-related stereotypes significantly diminished their intention to exercise and eat healthfully compared to the half that wasn't primed. It's not a consistent practice to go into something that you hate and try to hate yourself to these goals that you think will make you happier, said Lauren Levell, 
a weight-neutral fitness instructor and trainer based in Philadelphia. I just really don't think hate is a health-promoting behavior. No one is obligated to work out, and not everyone has the time, ability, or budget to do so. But feeling like your body is worthy and strong, instead of wrong and inadequate, can be a powerful motivator. Weight-neutral fitness instructors say that their clients and they themselves stick longer with programs that focus on objectives between, beyond pounds and inches. When I work out today, I monitor my heart rate and ignore how many calories I'm burning. I go to a Pilates studio that encouraged me to listen to my body rather than sculpt my muscles. I found a personal trainer who embraces a weight-neutral philosophy. I leave the gym feeling energized, flooded with endorphins from the power and joy of moving my body, of getting stronger, not smaller. To my constant surprise, I actually like it. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.